relationships. Our lives revolve around them. Family, friends, work or romance. They are complicated and messy. And don't always work out like we want. God made us for each other. Maybe he can show us a better way to be together. This is not your average relationship talk. Cool. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome. Uh, let me just begin by uh, praying together. Lord, we thank you for what you have been doing this evening. We thank you for what you've been doing here uh, throughout our journey at Sunday nights. And Lord, as we begin to look at your word here together and we begin to unpack some topics that um, will very likely bring up all kinds of different emotions for all of us. Uh, we pray that your spirit would bring your peace. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bring your truth and that you would enable us to see you, Jesus, and to see your church in a more amazing, mind-shattering way. So we bless your name. Amen. Cool. Well, um, as you know, oh, I feel like it's going to hit the video right here. Oh, there it is. The video was built into that segment. Ha! Huh. Cool. So tonight we're going to be talking about something that uh, is a bit touchy. So, but we've been through some awkward things together. We've talked about some weird things together on Sunday night. So hopefully you can stay with me on this one. Um, this is one of the topics that has um, this year, I think probably more than any other years recently, has wreaked havoc across the global community. Um, it's been one of the key deciding factors in all kinds of major political upsets. So when you think about the election of Donald Trump in the USA, one of the key issues was around immigration and how people of different cultures are meant to relate together. Uh, the same thing was often very true in, uh, in Brexit. One of the key moves that wanted the UK to leave the EU was for them to have control of their borders in order to decide who gets to come in and who gets to stay out, and how they manage these intercultural relationships. And it's not just those. I mean, you could look in pretty much all these different elections. Uh, Holland, the Dutch nearly got very close to electing a very, very hard far-right political leader based predominantly on immigration. And France just recently went through an election where their far-right party candidate was seeming to be one of the front runners. But Another guy named Macron has gotten in who's more in the center instead. And so it's something that has just exploded onto the world scene. And we wanted to talk about it because it's very real. And if we don't think through well how we relate to people who look different than us, talk different than us, and speak a different language, and come from a different background as us, then we're going to find the next few years incredibly difficult. Now, uh, a little disclaimer, again, like I did last week. Um, Tonight, you may catch me getting confused on which pronoun to use, because on, on a night like this, again, for me, it's a little bit awkward because I am myself an immigrant. Hi. So, and uh, it's also a topic I feel very passionate about. So if I become off a little bit prickly, know that it's in love. And if I keep on using pronouns like we and you, and I confuse the who the we and the you is, just join on that journey with me because my own mind is schizophrenic and being a permanent resident here, but an immigrant leaves me never knowing quite who I am. That's just the story of life. So it's easy for us to look at these other big nations, the US, the UK, Europe, and think how immigration is working for them and think, oh, here we're probably doing okay. I mean, we're an island nation. Our borders are a lot more secure because somebody has to either fly or swim to get here. But the truth is, for us, 
our nation is changing dramatically. And if you've looked at some of the census data, it's fascinating to see what's happening. So in 1945, I apologize for the colors, it's hard to see. Um, but in 1945, this was the census that was taken of New Zealand. And that, that main section that looks like it's blending into the background, it would, would, would reflect the European or Pakiha demographic. And that'd be about, in 1945, that was about 93% of the population. And then Māori would have been about 6%. And then everybody else, whether they're Pacifica, Asian, or Latin American or Middle Eastern, anyone else would have fit into the small 1% at the very top. In the 2013 census, it changed drastically. As you suddenly saw this explosion of other cultures coming into the scene, over that 70-year period, uh, Europeans dropped from 93% to 74% of the population. Māori doubled, more than doubled to 15%. Uh, hey, one of the fascinating groups that blew up into it was the Asian population. Now, again, this is a bit difficult because the census just writes Asian, but that it would include everyone from Pakistan to India to Korea to China. So it's a very wide demographic in that Asian group, so it's kind of hard to combine all into one. But then you also have Pacifica peoples that would have grown to 7.5% of the population. Drastically different, eh? Like the, the face of the nation has changed. And then when you look at the census estimates for what they think 2038 will look like, 25 years from when the last census was taken, it looks like this. Europeans have dropped to about 65% of the population, so still a majority, but only slightly. Māori grow to 19.5%, almost 20%, but Asians will overtake Māori to be about 21% of the population, and Pacifica grow to about 11%. Which means the, the New Zealand that your grandparents grew up in is drastically going to look different from the one that their grandchildren grow up in. And what was simple 60, 70 years ago in thinking about race and cultures and whether people talked like us and acted like us, issues that weren't an issue then, we are all going to have to navigate. All of us are going to have to learn how to interact with people who are from a different place, who don't speak English as a first language, who don't share the same world views that we do, who have different views on all kinds of different things, and we're going to need to learn how to interact with that. Now, what's fascinating is when you talk about this with anyone, statistics like this will often polarize people, eh? you'll have part of the room that will see that and be stoked. They'll be like, oh, this is awesome. We're getting all kinds of different people in. We're getting all kinds of different cultures. This is going to make us greater as a nation. And then you'll have some people that look at this and feel really anxious and feel really nervous as they suddenly see their demographic group perhaps shrinking and maybe their place in society that was secure and in the center is now perhaps getting pushed into the margins. And I'm sure the people here, different ones of us, will view these statistics very differently. Some will be excited, some will be nervous, and some will just look at them bored because no one likes bar graphs. But humor me, I like them anyway. Now, one of the things that comes up when you talk about immigration and when you talk about intercultural relationships and multicultural relationships is this idea of marginality. Now, it's, it's this framework where you've got two groups. You have the center. So think of it like when you drop a, a, pond, a stone into a pond, you get a ripple A. It's at the center of the ripple where things happen. The stone drops, the activity happens, all of the power, the, the, the ideas, everything flows from the center and then moves out slowly towards the margins. 
And every society has elements of people who are in the center and people who are in the margins. And it'll be different for all kinds of different groups and different time frames. Um, but what you'll find is when you see a statistic like this, you get nervous because no one wants to be on the margins. Basically, no one enjoys being shoved onto the outside. For here in the history of New Zealand, living on the, the margins as an immigrant has often been a very, very difficult place to live. Um, so, for example, uh, for Chinese who came over here during the gold rush of the late 1800s, found it incredibly, incredibly difficult. They were brought in because they needed extra labor to work cheap in the mines, pulling gold out from very difficult places. And so they were brought in in huge, huge numbers, but then this caused a backlash as suddenly there were a lot of people who looked different from the normal kind of European majority. And so some of the Europeans began to push back. And they, they used words like the Chinese were called the yellow peril. Um, they were poised to unleash a flood of barbarism across the shores of New Zealand. Even one of our own very own prime ministers, Sir Robert Stout, who did great things for women's suffrage, um, basically described the Chinese as a lower form of humanity who would lower the level of European society and who should be excluded from society along with Negroes and a few other words which I cannot use or would feel comfortable using in a church society. This was a prime minister of New Zealand. And so marginality is this incredibly difficult place. And if any of you have lived as an immigrant or lived as a different ethnicity or culture to the dominant one, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's that sense of not being able to catch up with what everything's happening. It's in social groups, not being able to understand the jokes that fly by quickly. It's not knowing who to go to for help. It's not trusting the cops to do the right things when you come across them. It's a, it's a very difficult place. And then if, you're, if you've come from the center or a place of stability, the idea of the margins is, for very logical reasons, scary. The idea of losing a place, losing an identity, losing what has been really sacred and important to you, that looks like it's under threat by people, and so you want to very naturally protect what's yours. Eh? It's, a, it's a very basic human drive within us. And so what you'll find is no one wants to be in the margins, and everybody's pushing towards the center. And when that happens, and no one does it in a wonderful, lovely manner, you get situations like America or Brexit where people are up to each other's throats and begin to talk about the person right in front of them as less than human, as a threat. We use terms like flood and these dehumanizing metaphors to describe a whole group of people because there's a sense of fear of marginalization. But as like we've done on every other series in this, every other talk in this series, I want to ask but for us in the church, what's our role? For us who know Christ and for us who love Christ, how do we respond to these stats, to the reality that our world is changing, that our nation is looking different day by day? Do we look forward with fear or do we look forward with hope? And to do that, I want to tell you a story. Now, it's a story that we all know. It's the story of the church. It's the story of the people of God. But I want to tell it in a way that's perhaps a little bit different from the way you've heard it before. Because most of you probably know the place from where you stand affects where you, what you see. Hey, your background, your perspective, and how you look at something will affect what you're looking for. And I think when we've looked at the story of Israel, we've looked at a lot of things. But I want to tell it a little bit differently. I want to tell you the story of the people of God from the perspective of an immigrant. And I think there's so much for us to learn as we look forward to our future here in New Zealand. So understanding Israel 
and the church and the people of God as an immigrant. The whole story of the people of God starts with a man called Abraham. Most of you will probably know him. He was the father of the great nation of Israel. He was the one that did that amazing slash terrifying moment on the, on the mountain where he almost killed and sacrificed his son. And now we call him as a man of great faith. Did you know how Abraham's story starts? We know that God calls him and we know that God promises him lots of children. But you know what the very first words, the very first words that God speaks to Abraham? The Lord spoke to Abraham and said, pack up and leave from your country. Leave your people and leave your father's household to go to the land that I will show you. The very first moment, the very first thing we have about a people of God is a story of immigrants. And so Abraham goes on this crazy story where he packs up everything and he starts traveling into far and distant lands. And if you read it from that perspective, you suddenly understand why Abraham does all these crazy things. He's going through these foreign nations. He doesn't know how to respond to these different kings. And so he messes up all the time and he calls his wife his sister because he's afraid that the king is going to kill him in order to marry his wife. And it becomes this huge debacle and it's really awkward. And so you see Abraham journeying as an immigrant. And then there comes that beautiful moment that so many of us who've been in church for a while will know that great promise where Abraham goes out one night and God speaks to him and says, Abraham, count the stars in the sky. Abraham, as many stars as you see, you will have more descendants. I will make you into a great nation and all peoples will be blessed by you. We love that promise, eh? We've heard that promise preached on so many times. Did you know what also is a part of that promise? Did you know what's also stuck in that there that we so easily miss? In that same promise, the Lord said to him, also Abraham, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they're going to be enslaved and mistreated there. Even in the very basic promise that brought Israel to birth, there was a promise that they are going to live as immigrants on the margins of society for 400 years. And so they lived in the Exodus, and we all know the story. We've seen the movie where Moses brings them out, and it's amazing. And God finally takes them out of Egypt, and he takes them out of their oppression, and he moves them towards their own land in Israel. And you could almost see it's like they've been living on the margins for so long, living on this outside of society, oppressed by the Egyptians. And God takes them and plonks them into their land and puts them right into the center and says, this is yours, own it and keep it and have it, right? That's what we've typically heard. But did you know in a book called Leviticus that none of us really like to read because it's filled with all kinds of weird things. In that book, God is talking to them. And he says, look, Israel, the land that you own cannot ever be sold permanently because the land is mine. You reside here in this land as foreigners and strangers, caretakers of what I have given you. Even in their story, once they're brought over and they're brought into their own place, God says, but you're still just foreigners here. This is my land. And so being an immigrant nation continues to be a part of Israel's story. The Ten Commandments, we know them, right? Honor the Lord your God. Don't sleep with your friend's wife. You know, some basics. Did you know in that one command to have the Sabbath and to keep it holy? 
We hear that and we've heard it talked on it and saying it's really important to have a day off a week, right? Did you know built, what's built within that commandment that we so easily miss? In that commandment that says Sabbath, that Sabbath was partially designed so that Israel landowners, who were farmers and taking care of their places, would make sure that there was a day off for their sons, their daughter, for their sons, their daughters, for their slaves, and for the foreigners and the aliens who were living amongst them. In that very commandment in the Ten Commandments, God says, Remember that you yourselves were slaves in Egypt once, and that the Lord God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. You know, built into the Ten Commandments is a command saying, Israel, remember that you were foreigners once too. Remember what it was like to live on the margins of society. Remember what it was like to have the boot of the Egyptians pressed up against your neck. Remember that and live out of that space continually and give the aliens and foreigners and the poor and needy amongst you a day off so that they can rest because God is a gracious God. And God was very concerned, actually, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you have all these passages where God talks about aliens and foreigners, because he knew Israel was getting back into a land that, that was their own. They had conquered it. They were setting up their own farms, their own vineyards. They were making it their space. They were moving from the margins to the center. And you could see God being so concerned with them just living this life in the center and that being their mode of operating forever. And so again, God tells them, when you're there, remember. In Deuteronomy 10, it says that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were once foreigners in Egypt. Can you see a thread coming through here? Can you see God reminding them of something over and over and over and over again? Love the foreigner amongst you because the foreigner is in a place where they don't understand the laws. They don't understand the customs. They don't understand the language. They don't understand what it means to follow God. And Israel, I'm calling you to be a light, a city on a hill so that all the world can look at you, Israel, and see who I, your God, am. So love the foreigner amongst you. They weren't so good at it unfortunately. And what you see is Israel gets kings. And as the kings go on, they forget the laws and the statutes of God. And they don't read the book of Deuteronomy or Leviticus anymore. And they manage to conveniently forget that they themselves were once an oppressed immigrant group in a foreign nation. All that leaves them. And they walk to that place to the center and they begin to dominate. They begin to subjugate, enslave their neighbors. Did you know that the temple, the great temple of God was built with slave labor? from foreign nationals that they captured and put to work. It's an awkward part of our biblical history, isn't it? And you see Israel forget their experience, forget who God has called them to be, and they become Egypt all over again. And they become the ones oppressing the foreigners amongst them. And so God begins to warn them with prophets time and time again. Remember that you yourselves were once foreigners. Love justice. Take care of the cause of the foreigner amongst you. Prophets warned them and warned them and warned them, and they never quite listened. And then one fateful day, a foreign nation came upon them 
and they were too strong for Israel. And they swept over the city gates. They tore Jerusalem down. They burnt the walls. They burnt the temple. And they left it a smoldering heap. And they took all of Israel out of their homeland and took them away to a foreign nation where they lived as exiles and slaves once again. Again, you see the story of Israel as a foreign people. And it's what's fascinating is that in this exile time, in this time when they're stuck on the margins, in this time where they're pushed out to the far sides, you begin to see them remembering who God is. And you begin to see them remembering who God has called them to be. And that's when you begin to see them talking about this Messiah who will come. This teacher who will show them who God is and what it means to be the people of God. And then that man comes along. Jesus. Now again, we're all very familiar with Jesus, but it's really easy to forget that when the, within the first few years of his life, he became a political refugee where he had to flee Israel. His family had to run to Egypt to a place where they didn't know anyone. Perhaps the language was quite different and they had to stay and reside there until the evil political leader in their homeland died. And then, and only then did Jesus get to come back home to his nation. I wonder how that informs the life of Christ, and I wonder how that informs our understanding of Jesus. Because again, Israel and the Pharisees were very much focused on trying to reclaim that center place, move back to that place of power, move back to the center. Let's retain that strong. Let's move away from immigrants. Let's keep our purity laws, and let's stay here. But instead, you see Jesus again pointing to a different way. Who are some of the people Jesus spends time with? The Samaritans. Considered foreigners, and dirty ethnic people to the Jews. He heals the centurion's servant, a Gentile, a foreigner. Not only does he heal him, Jesus says, there is no one in Israel who has such great faith as this man. You see Jesus again relating to and loving the foreigners and the immigrants amongst them. And he calls the church to embody this. He called the church and said, go do as I do, as I have shown, show others. And again, the church maybe wasn't so great at it at the beginning. I mean, we got there eventually, but did you know for us to finally get there and be okay with Gentiles accepting the spirit of God, it wasn't because someone reasoned in their room and had this great theological debate and said, well, I've read from the scriptures that God thinks this, so I guess we should move forward and start preaching the gospel to Gentiles. No, it starts with Peter is on his roof and he has a vision where God says, look, you got to go see this guy Cornelius, who's a Gentile. And Peter's like, well, I guess I have to. And then Peter goes there. And he doesn't know what else to do, so he preaches the gospel. And before he knows it, the Spirit of God falls on all these Gentiles. They start prophesying, speaking in tongues. And everything that Peter had thought was reserved for the Jews, just for the select people in the center, God says, no, no, this is for everybody. And it's only when Peter goes back to the Jewish council and says, um, hey, guys, awkward story. All those Gentiles are speaking in tongues now. What do we do? And you can almost see it in Acts. They're deliberating. They're like, 
Well, I guess what God has done, we just got to go along with. And thus opens up the church's realization that our doors are not barred to our own ethnicity alone. And the gospel does not call people just like you or just like me, but God goes and spreads out and reaches all kinds of different people and calls us to do the same. See, what you see depends on where you stand. And for a lot of us, it's very easy to live in a place where you hang out with the same people and you talk with people who talk like you and you, you engage with people who look like you. And it's very easy to spend your whole life that way. But God calls the church to be something different. The story of our very existence from beginning until end is a church that opens up its arms to the foreigners and the aliens residing amongst us. Because that is what God is doing. But here's the thing. We're not just doing it because, oh, well, there's some immigrants here who are lonely, so we should feel kind. We should feel good for them. Like, we'll be the good people and go love them. You know, like, it's really easy to think that way. But the truth is, is that the gospel presents it in such a different way. What you see depends on where you're standing. Real quick, a wonderful example was there's this Bible teacher who was trying to learn how to communicate the Bible to people well. And so what he did is he had a group of American university students, and he wanted to see how they read scripture and understand what people were looking for when they read the Bible. And so he got all these university students, and what he did is he read them the story of the prodigal son. He just read them it straight from Luke. And then he says, hey, turn to the person next to you and retell them the story because he wanted to see what sticks out in our minds. What are the bit of scriptures that we hold on to? And so the university students did that. And when the, the American students said it, it, the story came out a lot like this. Um, well, there was a dad with two sons and uh, one of the sons wanted the inheritance. So he told his dad, look, dad, I want my share of the money. And so the dad split up the finances and then the son went off and the son went off to a foreign country and he just wasted the money. He spent it on prostitutes and drinking and gambling and he wasted all the money. And then when he had nothing left, he was poor. And so he had nothing to eat. So he, weren't a, he went to work at a pig farm and then he was eating the slop. And then when he was eating the slop, he thought, oh, yeah, I should go back to my father because my father's servants are even eating better than I am right now. And so the son goes back to the father. That's how... Many of us would be familiar with that story, eh? That's the rough, I mean, there's little nuances, but that would be the rough structure that most of us would know the prodigal son story. What's fascinating is that he, he did the same experiment, but with a group of Russians. And he did the exact same thing. He, he read through the story, and he asked the students to repeat it to one another. And when the students came back and shared their bit of the story, there was one thing that was just drastically different between the two. Their story was, again, there was a father who had two sons. And the, two son, the one of the sons thought he could do everything on his own. And so he took all the money away from his father and went to a foreign land. And while he was away in the foreign land, a famine came and swept across the country. And he was alone. And he had no one to provide for him. And so he ended up working as a pig farmer. And he could not even eat the pig slop. And he was completely and utterly alone. And it was only then that he realized he could go back to the father. What's fascinating in these two stories is how different they were. 
the American university students who looked at it, when we hear the prodigal son in our worldview, what we focus on is he, really, he mismanaged his money. He was wasteful. We come from a capitalist society where every sense matters. And so the cardinal sin is that he was wasteful and he spent it on really bad things. But the Russian students, that didn't even show up in their telling of the story at all. Instead, they highlighted something not a single American brought up, which is that there was a famine in the land. Because in the history of that part of Russia, there had been a famine about 60, 70 years prior, and hundreds of thousands of people had died in the famine. And so for them in their reading, that was so prevalent. And this guy realized where you are standing depends, what you see will depend on where you're standing. And so the reason that we as a church need people from different nations is because they see things about God that we do not. They understand elements of God's gospel that we do not. We have blinders so big we cannot see through them. And we need someone else from a different culture to say, how can you see God that way? How can you live that way? The gospel is so much bigger. It's so much brighter. And we need different people to show us that. If you've only ever heard the gospel preached from people who look like and sound like me, you've got a small picture of the gospel. Because I can only present so much because of my own story and history. Instead, what you see in the church is immigrants and aliens become a gift to us because they help us to see and understand God more fully. They challenge us about the things that really matter. Where we can get so focused on lights and sounds and systems and, and, and programs, someone else can come and tell us that it's about community. It's about family. We can get so focused on whether we should do this or shouldn't do that, and we realize that the gospel is a gospel of grace, but also it's a gospel that calls us to suffer. Craig preached an amazing sermon this morning. One of our greatest blind spots in the West is we do not have a theology of suffering. We have no understanding that God would lead us through persecution. But there are those amongst us who do. And we need their stories to enrich our understanding of God. And so we as the church are called to something bigger than society. The world can look at those statistics and look with fear. They can look at that and feel nervous and afraid, being like, oh, I don't know if it's going to come together. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to lose my place. But we are called to something different. The church, rather than trying to hold on to that central place of power, instead can joyfully let it go and say, no, we are going to spend our time with those on the margins. Because that's where Jesus is. And we'll happily do it all day long. Take our place of power. We don't mind. Take our influence. We don't care. We're going to hang out with those who have no one else to hang out with them. Because in their voice, we hear the voice of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it's beautiful. And so for us, if you don't know anyone who's from a different culture or a different background of you, can I encourage you? There are some wonderful Christians here in our church that come from different places. Go and ask them their stories. Invite them over for dinner and listen. Ask them to tell you about how they understand God. I guarantee you will walk away blessed. Let's open up our arms and be a community that does not live based on fear and prejudice, but a community that opens up our arms to those who are foreign and different amongst us. Because in that, we represent the gospel to the world. And so we're going to move into a time of communion. We've got the elements here. And I wanted us to finish on communion for a certain reason. It's because when Jesus brought forward the cup and the bread, and it was around this table 
that a whole new world was formed. A new humanity was born. One that's not defined by our national heritage, but one that is defined by our commitment to the gospel. And so what we're going to do is we're going to finish on a time, and this table will literally be an embodiment of the great story. Because the story that I told you started with Abraham actually finishes in Revelation, where we see in the new heavens and the new earth a multitude of people from every nation, from every tribe, and from every tongue, all praising God in the myriad of different languages. And in our diversity, God is glorified because we are brought together in him. And so we're going to share this table as an act, a prophetic act of that declaration, of that truth of who God is. So if I can invite some of the volunteers that I've gotten uh, arranged beforehand, we're going we're gonna to pray and bless over this. And we've got a few different participants that will help us do that. Son the elements. Que la noche que fue entregado, el Señor Jesús tomó pan. Y luego de dar gracias, lo partió y dijo, tomen y coman. Esto es mi cuerpo que por ustedes es partido. Hagan esto en mi memoria. Asimismo, después de cenar, tomó la copa y dijo, esta copa es nuevo pacto en mi sangre. Hagan esto cada vez que le beben en mi memoria. Por lo tanto, Siempre que coman este pan y beban esta copa, proclaman la muerte del Señor hasta que él venga. Uh,我当日传给你们的原是从主领受的，就是主耶稣被卖的那一夜，拿起饼来，注注了注谢了，就掰开说：“这是我的身体，为你们舍的。你们应当如此行，为的是纪念我。饭后也照样拿起杯来
tēnei kopu i runga i o oku toto. Mai ngā tēnei i ngā imunga katoa hei whakamahara ki āhau. I ngā wā katoa hoki i kei ai koutou i tēnei taro. Iwi waha tēnei kopu e whaka whakakia tia ana e koutou te motunga o tō ariki kia taimai rā anō ia Would you please stand with me? On the night that Jesus was betrayed he took the bread and said this is my body broken for you it bears your sins and brings you into a new world in the same way after dinner he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. A covenant that binds together people who look and talk different. A covenant that says to the world that is divided by race and by class, that says no more will those walls divide us. A covenant that says together we come as one before Christ. It is spilt for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's come together and partake. Part of the reason that this is so important to me is that when you look at the world, this issue is literally dividing nations. It is literally ripping people apart. Families are splitting and churches have often been at the forefront pushing people out, advocating policies that push away the foreigners in our midst. And it tears me apart because it's it's ridiculous and I know it feels stupid sometimes, but I've got a, I've just got this, this vision and this dream that in a world that is so much divided by class and color and cultures and ethnicities and in governments that are trying to push people away and set people apart and narratives that are trying to push us away from one another, I've got this dream that the church can be bigger and better than that. I've got this dream that the church could be a place where anyone walks into from whatever background they've come from, whether they have or where they, they can't even say a word, they can walk through our doors and know they belong here with us. We can be that. God calls us to be that. That is who we are. That's our story. It's always been our story, and it will always be our story. We just have to remember that is who God is calling us to be. So let's be better than that. Let's be bigger than that. Let's not settle for the status quo, but let's push ahead to the great God calling God has called us to. To be the church that draws in all kinds of people. And in our diversity of languages and cultures and backgrounds, God is glorified. Oh God, make us into that people. Truthfully, we still fall so very short. Lord, would you forgive us for how we have perpetuated systems that oppress the foreigner amongst us? God, forgive us for being a part, colluding with governments that hurt those who come from different nations and look different than us. God, forgive us. 
and instead create in us the church you are calling us to be. The church that's filled with all kinds of different colors and languages, all kinds of different cultures and worldviews, and though we are so different, and though we often even disagree about things about you, we are drawn together in our love and commitment to you, and our love and our commitment to one another. God, make us better. That the whole nation could look at the churches and see what cultural reconciliation could look like. Lord, Spirit, we confess our need of you, our dependence upon you. Make us into your church, we pray.